You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. So a major newspaper, say a major newspaper of record gets a hold of some classified government materials, say some leaked documents, some leaked government diplomatic cables, and prints those documents. Well, what has that newspaper done? Has it exercised its rights under the First Amendment, or has it betrayed the nation? And does the answer to that question depend on the consequences of publication? Let's argue that out. That's what we are here for. This is another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We are at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. And on this stage, we have two teams of debaters, two tables, two members each, arguing for the motion. Freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. We have Gabriel Schoenfeld, who is author of Necessary Secrets, National Security, the Media, and the Rule of Law. And his partner, Michael Chertoff, former Secretary of Homeland Security and co-founder of the Chertoff Group. Arguing against the motion, Alan Dershowitz, the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, and David Sanger, Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times. There will be winners and losers in this debate. It's a contest in which you, our live audience, act as the judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before and once after, and the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winner. So, on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is, freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And arguing for that motion, I'd like to introduce Gabriel Schoenfeld, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And, and Gabriel, you, you are also a chess player, I understand, chess master at the U.S. Federation, Chess Federation. That's right. So, so you've come to play and to win. Yes, and I, see, I, and I, and I can see far ahead as well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Gabriel Schoenfeld. The gravity of the issue we're debating here tonight cannot be overstated. At stake is nothing less than preventing a reprise of the kinds of attacks that befell our city and our country nearly 10 years ago. To keep our country secure, our government inevitably generates a great many secrets of many different kinds. We cannot disclose all of the methods by which we track terrorists. We cannot publicize the vulnerabilities of our bridges and tunnels and buildings. But equally at stake is the character of our democracy. We live in an open society, and secrecy is antithetical to the democratic idea. Secrecy can be used as a cover for corruption and wrongdoing. And we depend upon a free press to keep us informed about what our government is doing in our name, including the things that it is doing in secret, or at least some of them. But even as we have a press that we want to be delving into state secrets, it must do so under the rule of law. The press must be vulnerable to prosecution when it violates the law's governing secrecy. The First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or the press. But of course, we live with numerous abridgments of free speech and free press, all widely accepted by the public and upheld by the courts. We can't libel one another. We can't engage in false advertising. And of course, it's forbidden to yell fire, falsely yell fire, in a crowded theater like this one. And as a statement of fact, ladies and gentlemen, the proposition under debate here tonight that freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets 
is inarguably true. Valid laws are on the books that criminalize the publication of certain state secrets. Now, does the existence of such laws mean that every time a journalist, like my colleague here, David Sanger, publishes a state secret, he should be prosecuted and marched off to prison? Absolutely not. The real question raised by the proposition is whether the the press can and should be prosecuted in those instances when it places the country in danger. Now, such danger is not purely hypothetical. Today, we have WikiLeaks, which in the name of transparency has indiscriminately dumped thousands of secret diplomatic and military cables onto the Internet. Now, some of those documents are innocuous, and many of them help us better understand what our government is doing around the world and what other governments are doing. But some of them are outright dangerous. One WikiLeaks document, a U.S. Army document, describes the technical details of the jamming devices used by our soldiers in Iraq to scramble the signals that that insurgents were using to detonate roadside bombs. Now I ask you, is there any reasonable person who believes it should be legal to publish the secret countermeasures used by our soldiers to keep from getting blown up on the battlefield? Is there any reasonable person who believes it should be legal to publish blueprints for making nuclear bombs? And if you in the audience agree with what Justice Robert Jackson once memorably said, that the Constitution of the United States is not a suicide pact, I urge you to vote for the proposition at issue here tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Gabriel Schoenfeld. Our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And here to speak against this motion, Alan Dershowitz, Harvard Law professor and consultant to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's legal defense team. Uh, Alan Dershowitz is, uh, as, as we all know, uh, a great attorney and a celebrity attorney who's been played at least twice in the movies. You, you, you were played in Reversal of Fortune by the late, great Ron Silver. And in American Tragedy, the O.J. Simpson trial, you were played by Richard Cox. But interestingly, Ron Silver in that movie played Robert Shapiro. So was he upgrading the role? Or? <laughs> All I can tell you is Reversal of Fortune, having been produced by my son Elon Dershowitz, who's in the audience, is a much better film. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz. Thank you so much. Let me start with a story that one of my dissident clients told me in the 1970s when I was representing Soviet dissidents in the bad old days of the Soviet Union. The joke went around during Stalin's time that a dissident was arrested for the crime of calling Stalin a fool. And he came to court and he said, I didn't commit a libel. I want to defend myself. I will prove that what I said is truthful. And he said, you don't understand, you're not being charged with libel, you're being charged with revealing a state secret. (laughs) And that's precisely the kind of state secret that we often seek to protect. Now, you don't have to be Stalin. Everybody knows, every newspaperman memorizes the famous quote of Thomas Jefferson. He said, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. That was pre-presidential Thomas Jefferson. Now let me read you a quote six years into his presidency. A man who never looks into a newspaper is better informed than he who reads them, inasmuch as he who knows nothing is nearer the truth than he whose mind is filled with falsehoods and errors. Thomas Jefferson sought to censor the press. We all know that he opposed the Alien and Sedition Act. Of course he did, because that was federal legislation but he supported state legislation that would have censored the press and protected him from embarrassment. 
And the issue is not whether secrets will be disclosed. If you read the New York Times, if you read Seymour Hersh, you understand the question is who decides which secrets are disclosed to whom when. Should the government, the executive branch of the government, be making the decision as to which secrets to withhold and which to reveal? And the primary responsibility for keeping secrets lies with those who have those secrets. As Julian Assange, I think, aptly put it, the best way to keep a secret is not to know it. And if the government wants to keep secrets, they have to do a better job of preventing them from being leaked and not put the burden on the press. And by the way, I mean not only leaked WikiLeaks style, but leaked Bob Woodward, Seymour Hersh style, the kind of selective leaks that we've come to grow accustomed to. There are very limited numbers of secrets that deserve to be protected. I believe, and here we have a real disagreement, you wrote in your book that you would prefer to leave this to the good judgment of prosecutors and the common sense of jurors. What I would prefer to see is a complete starting from scratch with the espionage law of 1917. Scrap it and draft a very narrow statute that says you cannot disclose the nature of certain kinds of weapons, you cannot disclose the movement of troops, you cannot disclose the names of spies. There must be a strong presumption in favor of freedom of speech and sunshine as the best disinfectant. The government says trust us. No. Don't trust the government. The New York Times says trust us. Don't trust the New York Times. Trust the process of checks and balances. That process is the best guarantee of liberty. Thank you. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. So here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, arguing for the motion that freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. Merkel Chertoff, who's former Secretary of Homeland Security, co-founder of the Chertoff Group, and after a long career in government, lived with the secrets, knows what some of them are. So just between us, because it's us here, (laughs) you're going to share some of it. You're not going to hear any secrets from me. uh, Michael Chertoff. Thank you very much. Now, nobody is arguing that the proposition means everything that the government has in its possession is a state secret. Nor are we arguing that simply having a single public official asserting that something is a state secret ends the analysis. But I think where the dispute has come down to is who actually makes the decision. Is it the government and the government process, or is it the press? Does the press get the final say? Now, I will agree with Professor Dershowitz that in the first instance, the right way to deal with this problem is for the government to control its own secrets. And most of the time, the government succeeds in doing so. But the reality is that there are times people do leak secrets. And sometimes they do it for what they may conceive to be noble motives. And sometimes they do it perhaps because they want to hurt the United States. And in those instances... It is not enough to say that because the government has failed to keep the secret, the secret ought to become public and ought to be published widely. And there, I believe the law allows, if the facts are there and the intent is there, a prosecution to take place as a way of deterring somebody from publishing that secret. And so I would argue that actually the existing system, which does require freedom of the press to give way to genuine state secrets, is pretty much the correct balance. And that's because the courts recognize that in the government process, a combination of executive action, congressional action, and judicial action, 
is the best mechanism for balancing between state secrets and freedom of the press. Now, the press often argues we ought to be the judges. And the difficulty is that the press is sometimes a flawed judge of what is in the public interest. First of all, the press is not a monolith. If we say that state secrets have to give way to the press when the press gets hold of them, then we mean it has to be any member of the press, a blogger, a Hezbollah journalist, somebody who works for uh, a, a news organ run by the government of a foreign country. And I don't think any of us believe that would be prudent or safe. The press is no more in a position to separate itself from its interest than anybody else. But unlike the organs of government, which are accountable to the public and to each other, the press is accountable to nobody. And that's why I strongly urge you to support the proposition that we're advocating tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael Chertoff. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Welcome back to the program. Our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And now here to speak against the motion, David Sanger, who is chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times and was part of the team involved in its WikiLeaks coverage. So you've, David, printed some secrets in your time. A few, a few. Well, I hope you're going to share those with us since (laughs) the other guy wouldn't. Ladies and gentlemen, David Sanger. Thank you. I come to this as a practitioner, not as a uh, legal expert. I come to this knowing that the tensions that we are discussing here today are, as you've heard, as old as the Republic. The New York Times, among other newspapers, had reporters embedded with Civil War troops, Union troops. And at one appropriate moment or another, several generals, having read the reviews of their strategy, took those reporters and put them in the brig. Uh, I've been around more than a few uh, government officials who suggested to me over the years, as we have debated various stories that we were getting ready to write, that what was good for General Sheridan would be perfectly good today. Um, I would argue it is impossible to separate out state secrets from what appears every day in the New York Times and other major newspapers around the world. It is impossible because you cannot discuss the subject of whether or not we should have gone into Iraq or how quickly we should get out of Afghanistan without daily venturing into territory that is classified somewhere and somehow. The problem is, as a reporter, I probably don't even know when much of that material is classified. And my friend Michael Chertoff points out that the press is a flawed judge of the national interest. That is absolutely true but a better judge than the U.S. government. Because when you read the U.S. government's own regulations for what gets made classified, the rules only discuss national security considerations. There is no category that makes the person who's got that stamp in the hand weigh a public interest. Only the press can do that, and only after the information is out. Now, there's a A second issue around this, which is that only the executive, they said, really has the full knowledge to make those decisions. But in fact, I think what you heard in the discussion of the constitutional origins of all of this is that the founders believed 
that to give the executive complete discretion in this area is to create a country that isn't like the America that we know. You would get Egypt under Mubarak. You would get the Chinese press today. Now, we are hardly indifferent as reporters to the question of what the consequences of these actions are. We live in New York and Washington. We have reporters who are out all across the world. Many have been kidnapped. A couple, unfortunately, have been killed. We know that the violent jihadists who we write about each and every day have no interest in a free press, and we're not here to side with them. We are also not here to be propagandists for the U.S. government, and you don't want us to be. If you think briefly about some of the stories that we have held back on, we held back for a year on the story on warrantless wiretaps that President Bush authorized. Eventually, we published it. Congress decided to rewrite the law. And we've published stories that are quite controversial, including one earlier this year about Stuxnet, the computer virus that many believe the U.S. government had a role in developing that was used against the Iranian nuclear program. What possibly could be the interest in that? Very simple. If the U.S. government, if any other government, is starting off a cyber war, well, we are the country that is most vulnerable to that problem. So these are central policy issues. These secrets are not merely published because they are cool stories. They are published because there is a debate that the public has to conduct. Thank you. Thank you, David Sanger. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. We have heard from both sides, the side arguing for the motion, Gabriel Schoenfeld and Michael Chertoff, who are arguing that a press that can publish state secrets without fear of prosecution actually endangers the nation. The team arguing against David Sanger and Alan Dershowitz are arguing that, yes, there are secrets that should be kept, but it should not be up to the executive of the U.S. government alone to decide which of those secrets are worthy of keeping secret. So we've heard opening arguments, and now the two teams are going to be freer to debate each other and and to address one another. And we'll take questions from you as well in just a few minutes. But I'd like to uh, start by putting to the team that is arguing for greater restriction on press freedom to to publish secrets. Do, Do you feel that the press can actually do its job, that your opponent, David Sanger, who's with the New York Times, can do his job? if he has to face fear of prosecution on a greater, to a greater degree than he does now, Michael Chertoff? Well, first of all, I respect David, and I certainly don't want to suggest he should ever put himself in harm's way. But I think the answer to that is yes. Most, most of the issues can be written about without getting into matters that are state secrets. First of all, there are times that uh, information is declassified or becomes available from other sources. But to give you an example of something that I would argue he shouldn't be able to do, is in the run-up to the bin Laden raid that resulted in eliminating bin Laden. Obviously, it was a compelling public story. And the fact that we were going to be invading another sovereign country and taking uh, military and and fatal action against an uh, individual who had not been tried or convicted was a big issue. I think it was a good idea, but others might have disagreed. And yet, had that been leaked in advance and had it gotten in the hands of the press, I would have argued it would be quite appropriate for the government to say to David Sanger, if you publish that, we will prosecute you and perhaps we will even enjoin you from All right, but, but, but your answer to my question is yes, he can do his job. Absolutely. I want to come back to David as a practical matter because you're the one who's practicing. Well, certainly the bin Laden raid raises a very good question, and it's one on which the New York Times has been very clear throughout the time that we uh, went through the WikiLeaks material, long before that, 
that we do not publish stories about operations. We don't name dissidents who walked into the Chinese embassy and talked to American diplomats. Where do we draw the line? Information that is merely embarrassing as opposed to operational. So the U.S. government, during the midst of the WikiLeaks uh, operation, asked us to withhold the information that the king of Saudi Arabia said in response to a discussion with an American diplomat about Iran's nuclear program, cut off the head of the snake. Now, why did they consider this to be particularly sensitive? They considered it sensitive because it would make it more difficult to conduct American foreign policy if the king read his own words in the New York Times or foreign publications. And so that's the distinction that I think is critical, the one between an operational secret and embarrassment. And before we get into the weeds on on the specifics of the cases, and we will do that, I I do want to stay with the question of if you had to work under that threat of prosecution, what would it do to your ability to work? And maybe your colleague Alan Dershowitz would like to take this on. Well, I can tell you that the greatest forms of censorship that take place today are not censorship imposed by the government. It's self-censorship resulting from fear of prosecution. But I'm not one who thinks that free speech is free or that it comes without costs. In fact, I think we've heard a very clever debater's point here tonight from our opponents, namely that if we concede that there are any conceivable state secrets like the plan to kill Osama bin Laden, then we concede the proposition. That's absolutely not the case. And I submit that you've conceded our point by changing the debate from state secrets to, and I quote Judge Chernoff, genuine state secrets. And you also used a modifier, real state secrets. The problem is it's just too broad. Okay, Michael Chertoff. But but, but, see, I I think this is the point. The point is, and I, I don't think we have to argue that simply calling something a state secret ends the analysis. If they are in an area where they are dealing with material that is classified and sensitive, they have to make a judgment. Now, there's a certain amount of uncertainty, and I understand that may have a chilling effect. But that chilling effect is what imposes a sense of responsibility. And let me say, everybody in the world who exercises power and authority lives with the possibility that if they guess wrong, they're going to wind up in trouble, including, for example, CIA agents. And yet, nobody says they should be immune from the possibility of investigation. I just think you're wrong empirically. I think you're wrong empirically. It's not the fact that people are guessing wrong. Seymour Hersh isn't guessing. He knows he's not being prosecuted because he's revealing a secret that you, not you personally, but somebody in the administration gave him on the slide. They say to him, we know it's classified, but please print this because it makes us look good. And if you print it, you won't be prosecuted. The end result is that people only feel chilled when they release secrets that make the administration look bad. When they reveal secrets that make the administration look good, they are not going to be prosecuted. Let me give you an example. I'm a supporter of the Obama administration. I think they handled the post-Osama bin Laden killing miserably. What did they do? They revealed the fact that they got computers. Nobody should have ever known that they got computers. They revealed the fact that they got telephone numbers of two guys in Osama bin Laden's uh, phone book. Nobody should have revealed that. Why did the Obama administration reveal that? They were proud of it. But, I, I but they heard, didn't reveal I, let, the Let me pictures. just say for the record, Why Alan, I, I have not pictures? heard from your side a refutation of their claim that, that David can't do his job. Can I do the job? Yes. Can I do the job the way all of you want me to do the job? Probably not. 
And that's because, as you said, there is uncertainty in the system. There's always going to be uncertainty in the system. But the uncertainty can't extend to the point where we are stopping from publishing something that may be published outside the country. It may be available in another form, maybe at a UN agency, maybe among international nuclear inspectors. And we simply will not know. We cannot know what is classified. You have to assume that almost anything on a sensitive subject like this is classified in some way. And we're willing to take that risk, not for us, but because there is a broader readership and citizenship out there. But Michael said if you roll the dice and are wrong, there are no consequences for you. That's not true. You, You laid out very clearly what the laws are and what the penalties are. Now, as you've may also point out, and Mr. Schoenfeld does in his book, there has not been a successful prosecution under the Espionage Act against reporters. There have been against their sources. And part of this is because I think the government recognizes that once you start down that road, it's very unclear where See, you draw okay, the line. Okay, Michael Trudeau. I think that illustrates my point, which is, in fact, the proposition is correct. Freedom of the press does give way before state secrets. And the reason that we can Uh, accept that proposition is because we have built a structure that actually is quite protective even within the terms of that proposition. And so when you do your job in a close case, if you feel you're acting in good faith, you can have a reasonably high degree of confidence that if it does wind up in a prosecution, you can go to court and you're going to wind up prevailing. And that's the worst possible result. Because what it says is if you're the New York Times, if you're Seymour Hersh, if you're Bob Woodward, you have nothing to worry about. But if you're Julian Assange and you're not working under the supervision of the government and you're not somebody who has a constant relationship with the government, you have plenty to worry about. It gives the government far too much discretion to decide who to go after for leaking and who not to. And that's very dangerous. Well, well actually, I think, I think Gabriel, Let's let Gabriel well, well, Schoenfeld it may, be, it may be dangerous for leakers, but it's certainly the, the historical record is not one of danger for the press. There's never been a successful prosecution of journalists, as David Sanger just, just noted. And the one case, I'm wondering what you think about it, where there was a prosecution was initiated, the Chicago Tribune case in World War II, where the Chicago Tribune published a front-page story strongly suggesting that we had broken the Japanese naval codes, a leak that could have cost the lives of tens of thousands of U.S. servicemen. Should the government go after a newspaper in a case like that or in a case like the Swift case where real-time operational intelligence is jeopardized about people who are trying to blow up our subways? Well, you know, let's 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 take Gabe's uh, question right on because these are decisions we have to make every day. During the run-up to the Iraq War, the Bush administration said repeatedly that they had made no decision and had no plans to invade Iraq. The New York Times discovered over the July 4th holiday in 2002, that there was a very detailed plan. And it published that fact with just enough detail to make it clear, but not quite enough detail to actually tell Saddam Hussein what that plan looked like. Now, there were many in the Bush administration at that time who were calling for the prosecution of the New York Times. I think the New York Times served an enormously important public interest there by making it clear to the public that no matter what government officials were saying in public to them, in fact, they had a plan based on what we now know was fairly loose evidence to invade a foreign country. But isn't, it doesn't Michael that actually illustrate the, the point we've been making, that the restrictions in place do allow a judgment to be made 
about whether something will cross the line or not. We sure because, didn't know that at the time. Well, sure you do, because you, you're able to predict. You, you know what the track record of the law is. You know that if a decision is made to prosecute, you're going to have a jury and a judge, and you'll be able to make an appeal to them. And all of those allow you some freedom of movement, but not absolute freedom of movement. The flip side of it is, to go back to the bin Laden case, if a news organ had gotten a hold of the plan to put seals into Abbottabad, and they had been able to consider publishing that without any fear of being prosecuted or being enjoined, with absolute impunity, would that be uh, where we want to see the United States? Giving that absolute protection would be devastating for the United States. I think there's an answer to that. If a newspaper learned about the fact that the SEALs were preparing to attack bin Laden, then that attack should have been aborted. You haven't been keeping your secrets well enough. You can't depend on a newspaper's discretion to put the lives of brave American SEALs at risk. So if you find out that a newspaper has that report, you have to abort. And sometimes the, are, are you the saying, Alan, that the newspaper would have a duty to print that? Well, let me, let me give you a story. Jimmy Reston didn't print the story of the Bay of Pigs invasion because he wanted to protect Americans and Cubans. The Bay of Pigs invasion was a disaster for America and a disaster for Cuban patriots. And what if did the President Times, Kennedy say to him later? I wish you had printed it. Yeah. And <laughs> if the Times had printed that, we might have averted a disaster. You don't know in advance. Look, the SEALs thing might have gone wrong. By that, Gabriel, right. and by that plan and by was that a bad logic, one. And by that logic, Professor Dershowitz, the Times should have published, in, if it had known in advance, that we were about to make the raid on bin Laden. If, because it could have gone wrong. And then we would have had to abort the operation. If, if, in fact, the Times learned that it was a bad plan and that it was an illegal plan and they decided to publish it and we had to abort it, that would be a very, very good example of the interplay between no, freedom would, of the it, press it an and the example. executive. We if have two. Let's, let's talk about how this would actually have played out. Hundreds of out. people are involved in a military operation like that. Yeah. Thousands of people are involved right. in other secrets. 2.5 million Americans hold security clearances. 800,000 of them hold top, the hold top secret clearances. In, popula- in populations that size, you're going to have people who disagree with the government, people who might be dis- deranged, people who, who are going to leak secrets. We cannot How have that How many people do you think knew about the Osama bin Laden? Hundreds. Back to the, All right, the David Sanger, David was, Sanger, New York you know, Times. Dozens, maybe, maybe hundreds knew about it. How would this have played out in real life? I suspect that the New York Times, for all the reasons I've laid out before, would not have published that fact. But when the phone call was made to the White House to say... We have heard this. My guess is that what would have played out is exactly what Alan suggested. The operation probably would have been aborted just for the fact that we made that phone call. And that tells you a little bit about how the system works in reality. Well, you're surely not going to argue, David, that the purpose of giving the press immunity is to allow them to play uh, kind of red teaming on government operations. Certainly not. Because, for example, with SWIFT, SWIFT was working perfectly well until, until Michael, it was revealed. Michael, just two sentences reminding people of what SWIFT, SWIFT was. SWIFT was the program that, that uh, allowed the U.S. government to track the flow of money to terrorists uh, on a global basis, which was exactly what the 9-11 Commission recommended, and it was a very useful and important program. And it wasn't failing, and the revelation of the program ultimately led to it becoming much less effective. And there were, were there issues of illegality of any kind? And, and no issues of illegality at times itself conceded. So there was a minimal public interest. This wasn't exposing criminality. What about the plans for weaponizing anthrax or for coming up with biological weapons? 
Would you take the argument that if, if we publicize those plans, that shows that uh, the information is out there, therefore let's disseminate it widely so people can begin to cook up uh, bacterial anthrax in their, in their garage? I think the logic of this refutes itself. Okay, wait, we're, we, we have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take questions from the audience. We're back to this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. Our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. Debating for the motion in support of the motion, Gabriel Schoenfeld and Michael Chertoff against Alan Dershowitz and David Sanger. And I'd like now to go to our audience to ask questions that will move this debate along. Thank you. So is the against side saying that the press should never be prosecuted for any publishing of state secrets, any state secret? Is that, is that the position? That was a question. Yes. David Sanger. As a reporter, I would, hope, uh, I would hope the prosecution wouldn't happen. But the reality is you have to establish a system in which the secrets that America is protecting are real secrets, like the bin Laden example that we were using before. But instead, we live in a system in which there are millions of pages classified each and every day. And you can't have a press that is living forever in the fear that the publication of any piece of data could lead to an equivalent prosecutorial discretion on this issue. Michael Chertoff. Well, I, I think the answer to the question that there obviously are occasions when the press should be prosecuted for publication. For publication that, of, of, state, of secrets? state secrets. And the, the issue then or becomes, some state secrets. And, and the argument that David makes is, but the problem is it's too hard because there's too much classified material. And yet the facts show that when it comes time to make the decision to prosecute, government historically, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, have been very, very conservative and cautious in actually prosecuting. And that tells me the system works and that it is possible to have a workable system where people who are responsible journalists know where they can't go, and the irresponsible ones, dare I say Assange, may find themselves in a different situation. And who decides who's responsible and irresponsible on the basis of what criteria? The issue is whether or not somebody should be punished for publishing state secrets. The answer to that is clearly no, not for publishing state secrets. If you want to have a list of things that can't be published, that's a very different criteria. You yourself conceded all three branches of government have to be involved. At the moment, the legislative branch hasn't been involved. They have punted. They have simply said broadly defined state secrets, the Espionage Act. That has to be scrapped. And if you want to have six, nine, four specific categories of things that can't be published, that's an interesting debate. And I think both of us In would acknowledge. In the center there? Yep. Um, yep. So is the four side basically saying that the... Statement is correct, but it needs a big caveat of a wise judiciary system. Now, I think what, what the foresight is saying is that the statement is correct in the context of the government system in which we operate. That's why saying, well, you know, this is, we don't want to become like Egypt or Russia. That's not the context in which the proposition is offered. The proposition is offered in the context of our current system of government in which part of the protection for the press is not just, quote, freedom of the press in the First Amendment, but it is the structure of government that says, 
if you actually want to take the step of prosecution, you've got to have an executive decision to prosecute. You've got a judge who will consider Alan Dershowitz's arguments about whether the law is properly written. And you'll have a jury of 12 people like you who will make the final decision. And the worst possible solution is to Alan give Dershowitz. the very same government that is being offended the power to make that decision. And if you think you can count on juries, just remember how juries operated during the McCarthy period. The First well, Amendment was built to protect the most unpopular, the most hated during the worst periods of our history, and discretion is not going to serve that protection. Al- Gabriel Solid laws. Even if we take your suggestion right. and, and scrap the Espionage Act, which I, I would have trouble trusting the current Congress to do a better job than the one that wrote in 1917. <laughs> they couldn't do a worse uh, job. Uh, but uh, even if we did that and we, and we had uh, a new set of laws that somehow managed to enumerate the very complex set of things that have to be protected, it's not just a little list of six, by the way, you still, if you had new laws, you'd still have juries and you'd still have prosecutors making, using their discretion. That's built into our system. It's not a perfect system. Name a better let one. Me, yeah, let me tell you. Let me name a better one. We should have a rule that says you cannot, under any circumstances, publish the name of spies. And if the New York Times does it, they must be prosecuted. No room for discretion. Thank you. I'm confused by this, this sort of hard-line r- rule that disclosing the name of CIA agents is somehow something that should be absolutely prohibited. But should it be prohibited even when the name is revealed by, a, uh, by an employee of the White House? Then there's this question of what is a secret? After a White House employee has leaked the secret, is it still a secret? You okay. said that... Okay, it's a perfect... Right. Well, it's I think that, no, that's I a great question, actually. And I think, that's, I think that illustrates exactly why I think the current system works not perfectly, but as well as you can have in, in human existence. There's never an absolute. There are probably some times that, that you could reveal the identity of an agent when it's out there already, and you could argue that there's really no impact. There are other times when you're revealing other kinds of information that would be terribly devastating or damaging. We have a system for resolving a prosecution because we involve people like sitting in this room and 12 jurors in the box. And that is the protection that we have that in the end, the law will be applied reasonably. And a reasonable application of the law is the best defense. A rigid application is one which is likely to wind up with exactly the kind of conundrum. Well, here we really have a difference, because I think you need rigid application when it comes to the First Amendment. The First Amendment says, no, juries don't get to decide that. The Constitution prohibits that, just like the Constitution prohibits discrimination against the most absurd of all religions. The same law has to apply to all. You say nobody is in danger because there is no prosecution. There is currently in Virginia a grand jury investigation directed against WikiLeaks, not against the New York Times. And the defense is going to be essentially, the Times published this too. You're not going after them. Oh, no, we okay. don't go after Michael the Times. Right. We go Alan, after WikiLeaks because they don't have the power. Of, isn't that a great example? I didn't want to bring up the WikiLeaks, but since you have, I will. Sure. Isn't, that a, is, <laughs> isn't that a great example of the fact that, that attributing ill motive to juries or to prosecutors of the government omits the fact that there can be ill motive on the, on the publisher? In the case of Assange, it's reported that his purpose in leaking the information is because he wants to make it impossible for the U.S. government to function by making it impossible for secrets to be held so that people can't have conversations. So he's motivated by ill will to the United States. Now, is this the man we want to trust if, God forbid, he got a hold of the bin Laden uh, uh, attack plan? Do we want to trust him to exercise his judgment? And do or we, we want to trust... trust people like those in this room? And do, no, do we want a prosecutor? Do we want to trust the prosecutor? 
who misstates what Assange said and what his motive was because he doesn't like Assange? Do we know what the motive of the New York Times is? Is it to sell advertising? Is it to be powerful? Is it to help the government? A motive analysis to be limiting freedom of the press would mean the end of the First Amendment. Sir? Obviously, this is not a debate of absolutes, and it seems that the point of discretion keeps coming up over and over again. So it's a question of who do you really trust when there can be abuses on both sides? Who has the most information to make that decision? Who has the most information to make the decision, and where is the greater risk? As much as I love the First Amendment, I'd like to pose that David question. David Clearly, as any government official will happily tell you, they've got a wider range of information than the newspapers do. And the government would make the argument that they're in a much better position to judge. That would be a very convincing argument if, in fact, the government, when doing its classification, had to do in a serious, credible way a measure between security risk and public's right to know. But the fact of the matter is, as someone in the CIA said to me just last week, no one ever got fired for stamping classified on a piece of paper. And, and we should add that the, the other side has not really addressed this whole striking example of the SWIFT program, where the Times revealed an ongoing operational intelligence-gathering program directed at al-Qaeda's finances. One chance to respond. Absolutely. Do, do you want to respond? Was the Times wrong to report on the SWIFT program? Was anything gained for the public interest? They were, the Times was not wrong to report on it because the SWIFT program had been written about in many forms over many years before and after al-Qaeda became a significant source uh, and issue. That is the only way international transactions flow and get cleared, and it was obvious to anybody who had read anything in any detail about how international transactions are going that that's where they go through. But the time, let's assume for a moment the Times was wrong. You didn't prosecute the Times. You don't have the guts to prosecute the Times. You will never no, I, prosecute I, I the Times. Do. <laughs> you are a bunch of bullies. You, you said will you go agree after that, only the no, weakest and the most vulnerable. The First Amendment is not about the New York Times. The First Amendment is about drudge. The First Amendment is about extremist newspapers and magazines that are very unpopular. The First Amendment is about people who could never win a case in front of a jury. That's who the First Amendment is about. I don't worry about the New York Times. They can defend themselves. They knock down trees by the forest fulls. Governments don't go after All right, newspapers like the New York Times. Um, sir, if, um... as someone who has actually published state secrets and been taken to court for it, I find all of this four guys dancing around the head of a pin. Michael Chertoff came closest when he said that uh, some state secrets are worthy of protection and others are not. And the question is really among you, who should decide that? That's right. And I think you actually all agree that this is a debate about who should decide. Thomas Jefferson once said, the law should be so crystal clear that you should be able to understand it if you read it while running. And there is nothing vaguer than the Espionage Act of 1917. It gives the government total power to decide who to prosecute. We need to have rules of law, not counting on the discretion of prosecutors, the discretion of juries to protect our First Amendment. It's just too valuable. Very quickly from I, I Michael do think, I do think the questioner absolutely put the question that really is dividing us, which is who decides. And I would argue, and I think our proposition will be at the end of the day, that it is the combination of Congress having passed the law, 
the executive branch making its decision to prosecute, and the judge and the jury, you people, deciding whether to convict or not. That's where the ultimate decision has to be made, not in WikiLeaks or in Julian Assange's living room. And that concludes round two of this debate. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. And remember how you voted before the debate because we'll be asking you right after these closing statements to vote again, and the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winner. On to round three closing statements. Our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And here to summarize his position against the motion, David Sanger, chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times. In 29 years as a reporter, I've learned that on two things, we almost always get it wrong. Whenever something has been leaked to me and I read stories later on about who the leaker was, it's almost invariably wrong, which tells you people get the motivations wrong. My own estimate about what the effects are of publishing a given story is also almost always wrong. It's very difficult as you go in and write something to know whether or not it is actually going to have a very deleterious effect. The hard question is, What do you do to make sure that the press in the United States can force the government to debate policy on the most important questions, whether or not we invade a country and have the right evidence to go do so, whether or not we use a new weapon, whether it is a nuclear weapon in 1945 or a cyber weapon in 2011? You cannot do that unless you have a bias in favor of publication, one that will make sure that the republic holds together because we have made ourselves different by pressing for publication whenever there is doubt. Thank you, David Sanger. Our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Gabriel Schoenfeld, author of Necessary Secrets, National Security, the Media, and the Rule of Law. I agree with David Sanger on his last point, that we should have a system that has a bias in favor of publication, including a legal bias. And I think that's there's room for reform, but uh, our government leaks like a sieve, and uh, the press publishes secrets all the time. Uh, But I'm just reminded of of an episode that occurred in uh, late 2009 when a New York Times reporter, one of your colleagues, David Rode, was kidnapped by the Taliban. And Bill Keller, the executive editor of the paper, made the executive decision to withhold that information from the public. And the idea was he didn't want to do anything that would endanger Rhodes' life. And all honor to Bill Keller for that. They, they protected the lives of their guy. But when the decision involves non-journalists, it can't be a voluntary decision up to Bill Keller. We ha- and that's why we have laws on the books that in the final, final analysis do allow for the prosecution of, of the journalists when they publish not just the random things that are stamped secret for no good reason, but the genuine, really hardcore secrets that place our, our lives in danger, including some of the things that your, your newspaper has published, like the Swift story, once again. Thank you, Gabriel Schoenfeld. Our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Alan Dershowitz, the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard. The proposition, freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets, is far more dangerous than any of the state secrets that have allegedly been leaked during the 200 and some years of our republic. That's why the other side has to add genuine or real or some. And I urge you to vote against this proposition, because if this proposition is passed, it sends 
an extremely dangerous message to the government. That it continue business as usual. And the current situation is very clear. Anything that's published relating to national security today could be subject to prosecution. What we need is specific legislatively enacted rules that say that no one, not a favorable press, not an unfavorable press, can ever under any circumstances reveal fact A, fact B, fact C. You don't trust juries and prosecutors with broad, overarching criminal statutes when it comes to the First Amendment. You narrow, you limit, and then you give it to the jury. But the last institution that should be making the decision who to prosecute is the very institution that is criticized by these revelations. So I urge you, I urge you, do not support this proposition. This proposition is dangerous to your liberty. Thank you. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. And our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Michael Chertoff, former Secretary of Homeland Security and co-founder of the Chertoff Group. I think that our adversaries have essentially conceded that there are a category of state secrets that ought to be protected. And what they're arguing is the existing structure is somehow not definite enough. We have the Communications Intelligence Act protecting the information about our top-secret code-breaking and code-making communications activity. Quite specific, very reasonable, and very understandable. We have the Intelligence Identities Act, keeping the names of intelligence agents safe. Even the Espionage Act, which has gotten the brunt of the firepower here, requires a finding by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that there was intent to damage the national security of the United States. I would argue that's exactly the kind of specificity that is appropriate in defining the category of state secrets that we are arguing ought to be protected. And in fact, the message that will be sent will not be one that will chill responsible reporters. It will be one that will chill the Julian Assanges who want to publish things because they want to hurt the United States and then want to claim the First Amendment to protect them against the consequences of that kind of decision. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael Chertoff. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to find out which side has argued best. Remember, our motion is freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets. The results are in. Before the debate, 39% were for the motion, 31% against, and 30% undecided. After the debate, 46% were for the motion. That was up 7%. 47% were against. That's up 16%. And 7% remained undecided. The team arguing against the motion, freedom of the press does not extend to state secrets, has won this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Become a fan of Intelligence Squared U.S. on Facebook. Sign up and receive 15% off tickets to our live events. Just go to www.facebook.com forward slash think two twice. You can also follow us on Twitter at IQ2US. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.